This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, Today we have with us another very special guest, uh, an individual who I think is one of the foremost uh, figures in American letters today, writing about history, politics, and many related issues. Uh, It's Ian Buruma. Ian is a leading writer, as I said, writing about issues uh, that range quite quite widely, including human rights, democracy, international affairs, uh, the history of various societies in Asia and in Europe and the United States. Uh, he is a prolific author, written so many books, so many more uh, than most of us have. And in fact, it's hard to keep up with all of his books. Some of my favorites are uh, The Year of Zero, Occidentalism, uh, and the wages of guilt, uh, and many of these books actually surround uh, World War II and that moment uh, in the last century. Ian's most recent book, which I just finished reading and really enjoyed and highly recommend to you, has a, a wonderful title. It's called The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special, From Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit. And that book has just come out, and it's really a, a major reexamination of uh, U.S., British, Anglo-American relations over the last 70 years or so. Ian, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So before we turn to our discussion with Ian, uh, we have, of course, our scene-setting poem from uh, Mr. Zachary Suri. What's the title of your poem, Zachary? The Greeks have seceded from the continent. Let's uh, hear it. The Greeks, the Greeks, their history it reeks of the conquering soldiers of Rome, of the big man and his cigar foam when they were bailed out by the pioneers. And after they'd won, they had to ration their buns and beg for loans from the people of Rome. The empire had fallen, giving way to Stalin, and the Greeks were rebuilding their home. But then they did rise like kelp on the tides up onto the beaches of Port Said, The empire was condemned, but no one told them and thought they could get what they pleased. The Messina had come and gone on some patio or Sicilian lawn, and the plans they were made for the Europe we'd prayed while the Greeks were still plugging their ears. When they needed to play ball, there was Charles de Gaulle, and twice they were left in the dust. And then they opened the door and let them take the floor of Europe and a system of trust. On the day of the Brexit, the force feeding of the competent, it was reportedly quoted from the ghosts of the bloated, the Greeks have seceded from the continent. Zachary, I love the way you uh, use the Greeks to stand in, of course, for uh, British claims to being the legacies of the Greek civilization in many ways, and uh, the way you take us through that history. What is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, Britain's complex relationship with its empire and its history as a great empire after the Second World War. In many ways, it um, it, it declined in power even after uh, its moment of greatest success during World War II. That's fantastic, Zachary. And I think that takes us right into the, the heart of, of Ian's book. Uh, Ian, how do we understand uh, this moment where your book begins at the end of World War II? I know that's also where your personal connection, at least in the, in the book, uh, begins. How do we think about this moment and what it meant for Great Britain and its relationship with the United States at the end of World War II? Well, they were, of course, the two great victors of World War II, as well as Stalin's um, Soviet Union. 
Um, but I grew up um, in a country that had been occupied by uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, I was born after the war, but still very much in its shadow. And like many people of my generation, we sort of looked up to the English-speaking world, particularly Britain and, and the United States and Canada, um, because they were our liberators. And look where they are now um, with Trump and Brexit. And that's really what, what gave me the impulse to, to write this book. And um, I think the paradox of the story really is that moments of glory in history can often um, put down the basis for uh, future um, disasters. And um, that's what the, the title, The Churchill Complex, really refers to in that I think uh, it was definitely glorious and a good thing that uh, the Allies, the Brit British and the Americans defeated Nazi Germany and the Japanese Empire. But um, out of that, all kinds of problems grew. Uh, among them, uh, the fact that Britain could never see its way to play the role it should have played in Europe, and that too many American presidents uh, tried too hard to be like Winston Churchill and embark on foolish wars to... Um, uh, to 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 protect uh, the world uh, for democracy, um, sometimes well intentioned, sometimes less so, but it um, it ended up um, in a disastrous manner. I think, um, um, especially in the Iraq War. Right, right, and we'll get to that um, part of the discussion. But first, let, let's let's come back to the figure, of course, who whose shadow uh, overhangs the entire book, uh, Winston Churchill. How do you think about Churchill now, and how do you think, uh, particularly our American listeners, should understand Churchill's place in history and 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 his lessons for us today? Well, I think Churchill, in peacetime, uh, is a is a terrible role model for politicians to follow. He's not the kind of man you want um, uh, at the head of a, to lead a country in normal times. But in May 1940, he was exactly the right person because he had the kind of bloody-minded romantic patriotism and the, uh, the sense of theater that was necessary for him to raise the morale of a country that was in, in dire peril. And uh, through his speeches and so on, he managed to um, get the British population behind him and um, face down Germany for at least a year without um, many allies, even though they did, of course, have um, the entire British Empire to fall back on, which was a, a big thing. But um, he, he, he knew uh, in May 1940 that um, compromise with, with Hitler was um, uh, impossible. And other politicians... Um, like uh, Chamberlain, who's gone down in history as a sort of cowardly appeaser, um, are natural compromisers or were natural compromisers. And that is what peacetime politics is all about. But uh, it, at that particular moment, in a, in a, at a moment of existential crisis for a country, you need a Churchill. But those moments, uh, thankfully, um, are very few. One of the really interesting uh, points you make in the book, however, is that uh, Churchill, for all of his um, unwillingness to compromise with, with the Nazis and his steadfastness in that domain, uh, made a lot of compromises with Franklin Roosevelt. And then after World War II and his second prime ministership in the early 1950s, had to do the same again. So, so how do we understand that shift in Churchill? 
Well, he knew that without the United States, uh, the war could not be won. And uh, so he was in a, in a, you know, if you were a businessman, you'd say he was in a very weak negotiating position. And uh, he had to do what the Americans, who were fast becoming uh, a much more greater power than the British Empire, he had to do what the Americans wanted. And so he had no choice but to make compromises, which were often very painful economically. And um, but they had to be made because without um, uh, American participation, it was a hopeless, hopeless cause to fight uh, Nazi Germany. Um, and Roosevelt knew that. Roosevelt also knew that um, probably until the last minute, until Pearl Harbor. Uh, the majority of the American people were not in favor of getting involved uh, in a, another European war. Um, but um, uh, he knew that he had the upper hand with, with the British. You remind us in the book that uh, Churchill coined the phrase special relationship. What did he mean by that? And then what do you you mean by it when you invoke it thereafter? Well, first of all, the special relationship, I think, was always more special uh, from the British perspective than it was from the American one. I don't think that many Americans feel deeply sentimental about Britain. After all, many Americans have no, don't, don't have any family roots uh, in Britain either. Um, but for Britain, and especially in, in the, at the beginning of World War II, it was absolutely vital. And it was a typical example of how Churchill found a rather grandiloquent way to to describe um, the relationship. At the beginning, he he was not, I don't think, one of those romantics who go back a long way on both sides of the Atlantic who saw a kind of racial um, alliance of the English-speaking peoples and even suggested at one point in the 19th century that America and Britain might sort of merge into one great Anglo-Saxon nation. He wasn't really like that, even though his mother was was American. But I think he saw more and more um, that it was a necessity to um, think of that in that sort of rather sentimental way. But I, but I think uh, because of World War II, he evoked that kind of feeling of kinship and, uh, and the English language and Milton and so on. And in Churchill's case also, I think he was genuinely uh, romantic about the, the democratic tradition, which he saw as a, as a, as a typically sort of Anglo-Saxon thing, which um, is questionable, but he, he did see it that way. And um, he, he took parliament very seriously, he took democracy seriously, and he took political freedom seriously, even though he did not extend that to the colonial subjects uh, of the British Empire, which annoyed Roosevelt, who uh, had romantic notions of the United States being the great defender of uh, people who wanted to be free from empires. And, and one of the themes I thought, Ian, that you, you weave beautifully through the book, and one that, that all of us who write about this and teach these topics struggle with, is this balance between, uh, shall we say somewhat crudely, race and democracy. And, and in a, a heightened moment of racial awareness today, I think it is something we need to talk about. You know, to, to what extent was this Anglo-American special relationship really about democracy? And to what extent did it carry in perhaps vestiges of racialized thinking that, that also undermined democratic principles? 
Well, Churchill, in, in today's terms, and even in the terms uh, of his own lifetime uh, to many people, was certainly a racist. Uh, he certainly did believe that the Europeans, the, the, the Americans, the white people, the Australians and so on, um, had a superior civilization to Indians and Chinese and, and other non-white peoples. I mean, he clearly did believe that, and so did many people at the time, even though um, some people did not, and not everybody believed it as fervently as Churchill did. Um, whether that really played um, a major role in the wartime alliance is uh, something else. Um, th that is perhaps more dubious. I think there it was it was also very much a question of uh, standing up for, 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 for democracy against um, what were, after all, um, uh, dictatorships. Uh, which were a real direct threat to, to both countries and, 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 and uh, had already overrun Europe and, and parts of Asia. Um, so I think the racial aspect can be overdone, but it was definitely there, and it came up in particular um, during uh, 1941 when Churchill and Roosevelt um, devised the Atlantic Charter, um, which was um, a kind of blueprint for the post-war war world. And one of the things that uh, the, the, the goals was um, national independence. But Churchill did not believe that countries like India should be independent from the British Empire. Roosevelt did. And I think uh, that a certain kind of racism uh, uh, did play a part in Churchill's thinking about the empire. I mean, the other thing was perhaps more practical is that he, he, he realized that without an empire, Britain would no longer be a, a great global power. Um, so, so in your book, you write of the seminal importance of post-war policy in the Middle East to Anglo-American relations, in particular in regards to the Suez Canal crisis, which is really one of the centerpieces of your book. How has the image of Churchill and the shadow of Munich shaped policy in the Middle East and more broadly throughout the Cold War? Yes, I mean, not just in the Middle East and not just during the Cold War. I think that the, the image of Churchill, you know, the, his bust in, in, in the Oval Office is an example of it and the fuss made over uh, when um, Trump became president over the allegation that somehow um, Obama had dissed Churchill by removing the bust and so on. The symbolic um, uh, role that Churchill has played, I think, has been on the whole a negative one because, uh, as I said earlier, too many presidents tried to sort of live up to his image. But the other great symbol that, um, which is linked to this uh, is indeed Munich, 1938, when Chamberlain um, received the promise of peace for all time in exchange for letting the Germans overrun Czechoslovakia. And every single time there was a foreign crisis after the war um, and the question of whether or not the United States in particular should intervene or not, the, the ghost of Munich was raised and um, British and American leaders were so obsessed with this and so frightened that they would um, make the same mistake as Chamberlain and go down in history as appeasers, that they would embark on uh, military conflicts that they shouldn't. And you find this in the Suez crisis when um, 
Anthony Eden, who was then prime minister, compared Nasser to Mussolini and the fascist threat and told people on the radio that we know what it's like when we appease a dictator and then decided to go to war in, in the Middle East. You find it during the Korean War. You find it uh, during the Vietnam War when, uh, when Lyndon Johnson compared uh, the South Vietnamese president to Churchill. Um, uh, you find it in um, the Gulf Wars, uh, all the way up to Tony Blair and, and, and George W. Bush, when Blair uh, relates in his memoirs how he read uh, Chamberlain's diaries um, and realized that he could not make the same mistake again and therefore had to stand by President Bush in invading Iraq. So it's, it's, it's something that has haunted uh, leaders um, in Britain and America uh, ever since. And one of the really poignant parts of your book, Ian, is that uh, section where you discuss uh, the Tony Blair-George uh, W. Bush relationship. And I, I thought we could drill down on that for a second. And it comes back to Zachary's poem also. I mean, if if the British uh, see themselves as the Greeks to the American Romans, uh, providing us knowledge and wisdom, and we, we have the muscles and the money and the Brits have the knowledge and the wisdom, why didn't that work out that way? Uh, with regard to the Iraq war, you show that in some ways, Tony Blair and those around him were trying to prepare him to play that role. But then you talk quite poignantly about how, in fact, he didn't play that role. No, I think also there, there is a generational difference, of course, between Harold Macmillan, who coined that phrase at the end of the war, um, and uh, Tony Blair. Tony Blair was not even though he, he talks a great deal about reading up on history and being conscious of history and so on, was not all that historically literate. I mean, he, in the, right at the, just before the Iraq war, when he had to explain, I think, in the United States, why he felt that Britain had to stand with the United States, um, he talked about the one people who stood by uh, Britain in its in its hour of greatest peril in 1940 um, was the Americans. Well, they weren't. I mean, the, the Americans only joined the war right at the end of 1941 with the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so he, he he's very superficial in that way. But I think the most... The biggest reason why he, he was different and why he was so so quick to join George W. Bush was that he had, he, I call him, or somebody else probably called him, and I quoted it, but the most American prime minister since the war. Yes, yes. And one reason, I think, was that he, not just his, his uh, attraction to spin and showbiz and all that that he, he had in common with, 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 with Bill Clinton, but he was a very religious man. And like George W. Bush, who was a born-again Christian, I think he saw politics, foreign policy, military uh, intervention, and so on, in, in messianic terms, in a way that's very unusual for British politicians, less unusual in America. And he saw it as a question of good against evil and uh, really like Bush. I mean, that's why they got on, even though they politically didn't have all that much in common. But they both had this sort of messianic way of, of seeing um, Anglo-America as being the forces of good against evil. And 
people who really saw themselves as the Greeks, like Macmillan, I think, uh, were much more sophisticated and, and skeptical and did not think in those terms. It is quite striking, and, and you describe it so well. There does seem to be such a superficial veneer of what sounds like historical learning in the discussions between both the American president and the British prime minister, but it does seem so shallow in retrospect, as, as you just pointed yes, out. Yes, and people didn't, didn't see it often because um, George, George W. Bush was, was uh, uh, so ineloquent. I mean, he, 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 like his father, he had trouble stringing a, an English sentence together properly, whereas um, Blair was was very eloquent and gave very good speeches. And I think, again, especially in the United States, this gave him the image of being a sort of tremendously sophisticated sort of European figure, which um, he wasn't really. So, so Ian, do you think I wasn't clear from the book? Do you think that um, the horrible uh, consequences of the uh, Anglo-American cooperation in the Iraq War and the horrible consequences of that war uh, did that mark the real end of the post-war era for U.S. Uh, British special relations? Well, it's always difficult to say whether something marks the end because then it begins again. I mean, the, some people thought it was the end was during the war, the Balkan War, when it was the British who resisted any kind of intervention, and it was the Americans in the end who who did intervene, and um, there was complete contempt in Washington then for the British. And the Cold War was over, and it was felt that this was also the end of the special relationship since there was no more need for it. But then, you know, under Bush and Blair, the relationship had a second life. And um, who knows, uh, with, with Trump and Brexit, in a way, the two countries, in a negative sense, are rather close again, too. Uh, so I don't know the beginning. Uh, you can say that there was a beginning or an end. Um, in some ways, I think probably the, the end of the Cold War um, made this, the so-called special relationship more and more redundant. But um, one never knows these things. Right. And it certainly lives on in James Bond movies and various other cultural forms, doesn't it? Yes. But of course, the J James Bond was a figure of the, of the 50s and the movies were the, the, the heyday were really in the 60s and 70s. And yes, it lives on but um, as a very vague echo of what it once, what it once was. And I think uh, James Bond, I bring him in um, because he was very symptomatic in a way of the decline of, of British power in that uh, in the 50s is really when most of the empire began to uh, dissolve into independent states. Britain lost its sort of global reach and uh, was very much the junior partner of the United States. And uh, it, as a sort of way to bolster a British amour propre, in a way, um, Ian Fleming um, uh, imagined this sort of uh, sophisticated um, British hero who exemplified all the virtues uh, that had once been glorified during um, you know, Britain's heyday. And it was a, it, an act of nostalgia, really, and so were the films. And, of course, they were never meant to be, neither the books nor the films were meant to be realistic. But I think um, nostalgia was the main uh, thing behind them. Right. And of course, uh, MI6 and James Bond in those films and books, uh, they're the Greeks to the uh, 
over over overly muscled uh, pea brain CIA and the United States of Felix Unger and others in that very story. much so. And, and James Bond knew how to dress in fine suits and mix a cocktail and uh, <laughs> and, and was sophisticated and and so on. And uh, whereas the Ameri- the, the cousins uh, the other side of the Atlantic were always rather crass. Um, so that that that's very much I think a, a sort of um, idealizing nostalgic self-image of of the British at the time that they felt that that appealed precisely because they were losing so much. Right. So so how on earth, Ian, do we get from that world um, to Boris Johnson and Donald Trump? You you close your book there and you have a lovely chapter, but it's still not clear to me how the lines connect. Well, they're different in different countries. I mean, it's, it's just like uh, fascism was different in different countries because you know different countries have different histories. Um, populism is not quite the same; it doesn't have the same style in the United States that it has in Britain or indeed Austria or France or other countries. I think in the United States, the great irony, of course, is that even though uh, Trump talks about American greatness, he stands for everything that. Franklin Roosevelt deplored. I mean, he said the America First uh, slogan was devised by by people like like Lindbergh, who were against uh, American intervention in World War II and rather sympathetic to the Nazis. Right. It was exactly what Roosevelt was trying to to fight against. Um, but I do think in in that in Trump, Trump's case, it was partly not not only but partly the result of too many reckless adventures culminating the Iraq war. I think people in in the United States were heartily sick of interventions like that, which were hugely expensive uh, and bloody. And so the the America first thing began to appeal. In Britain, it's a little bit different. I think in, in, in Britain, since the 90s in particular, there's been a lot of resentment whipped up by the popular press, the tabloids, about the fact that the Germans were doing so much better than the British, that they were richer, more modern, more powerful, and so on. And the, the feeling was 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 in, in 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 among a lot of tabloid readers people who felt they were left behind that they were not doing so well anymore that they were losing their jobs and so on and so forth that this wasn't fair you know we'd won the war how come that you know the germans are doing so much better than we are and uh, out of that too uh, came a different kind and more toxic nostalgia which was you know if if only britain could go it alone again and and, and and have another finest hour and free the nation from foreign tyranny, meaning the European Union, which of course was never a tyranny, and Britain played a very major part in running it. But that that sort of sentiment played a big role in producing Boris Johnson, who was also fanning the flame flames himself. And it's not for nothing that part of the Brexit campaign was uh, a lot of references to Spitfires and Churchill and Finest Hour and, and, and so on and so forth. You know, as, as I was reading your book uh, and thinking about this and, and listening to you now, I mean, it, it, there is another side of this, right? It's the sort of George Orwell's Road to Wigan Pier, right, of these uh, communities uh, in both societies, in Great Britain and in the United States, that in many ways never bought into the internationalism, that, that you had a maybe a, a, a set of leaders over the course of 50 years who were way ahead of where their publics were. 
And in a certain way, this might be a return to some kind of normal. Do you see it that way? Well, I think that the, those things wax and wane. Uh, there isn't w- w- one public opinion ever, and public opinion changes. And I think in certain periods all over the world, certainly in the in the fifties and 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 sixties, um, there was an almost a consensus. I mean, there were those who, of course, who were deeply doubtful about it, but there was almost a consensus that internationalism and cooperation and a better world and so on. Um, were necessary because they still had memories um, of the de- of, of the catastrophe of World War Two, and those sentiments have definitely changed. I mean, not just in Britain. There, there's it's harder now to get young people to support uh, the EU, the European Union, uh, the ar- because the argument that we need it to prevent another world war in Europe uh, really doesn't cut much ice anymore because nobody's afraid of it. And so, uh, yes, it, it's, it's possible that globalization, um, the idea that globalization was uh, the only way to go, that um, neoliberal economics were uh, the only kind of economics that we could have and so on, that's certainly created a backlash. And not just in these countries, and, and a lot of the populism we see in, in America and Britain and, and elsewhere is a reaction of people who say, well, this is f- very fine for the 1% and the bankers and the bureaucrats and who run the EU and so on, but um, we're not um, getting any advantage out of it. You close your book on on a sad note that echoes what you just said of, of how uh, the memories that that you had and the knowledge that your generation has is, is in some ways lost on, on younger citizens and in both societies today. Uh, but we always like to po- uh, close our podcast on a, on a forward looking, hopeful note. Uh, what hope do you see? What lessons do you see that could be productive for our societies, for young people who are interested in these issues, who read your book and care about transatlantic relations? What are the, the hopeful lessons they can take away? Well, the hopeful lesson is that however much mankind screws up, uh, people are resilient and, uh, and and come out of these disasters and often build something new and better. And um, it may be that we need a very bad period uh, like the one we're going through now, um, or perhaps one hopes it doesn't have to get very much worse for people to realize that, you know, we have to start really rethinking things and, and doing things differently. And, and one hopes uh, in, a, in, a, in a better way, as happened after 1945. And so if I can follow on that, do you see this moment living through this now and having lived through at least the end of World War II uh, or the aftermath of it and knowing, as you do, so much about World War II and the Great Depression, do you see this on the same scale? Or how do you compare the two periods? No. Uh, clearly, Trump is not Hitler and um, uh, COVID-19 is not a holocaust. And uh, so you, you, you cannot possibly compare what we're going through now to what people went through in the 40s. Um, it could, of course, get a great deal worse and there could be more wars and that kind of thing. Let's hope that won't happen. But I think if one is, I think historical comparisons are always risky because history never repeats itself in exactly the same way. But there are ominous signs uh, that certain things we are seeing 
in politics today are rather like uh, what happened in the 1930s, um, where people are beginning to doubt democratic institutions, where they're getting to think that certain authoritarianism might be what we want, uh, where foreigners and immigrants are blamed for all our problems and, and so on. And this is, of course, a deeply worrying phenomenon. But you also believe it could trigger some of the uh, hopeful actions that you also see at the beginning of your book as well. Yes, it could. Um, and I think in the United, just speaking of the United States, um, I think the fact, if you look at the Democratic Party, um, people often uh, worry about the fact that it's so divided, uh, that the younger generation of more radical politicians um, uh, have so little in common with the older generation uh, represented, I suppose, by Joe Biden himself. But in, in a way, you could also say the very, the very fact that uh, so many young idealist, more idealistic people still want to be politicians in the Democratic Party is, is, a, is a good sign because it means that all uh, confidence in the democratic system itself has not yet been lost. It's, it, it becomes much more ominous if people have no more, more confidence in, 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 in the institutions and, uh, and then think violence in the streets is the only other option. This is, I think, the central theme that comes up week after week in our podcast, this tension that we're living with now that's not historically unique to this moment, a tension between, on the one hand, the evidence of a democratic decline and challenges to, to democracy, but also the evidence of energies for renewal, yes. new actors, new new approaches. And, yes. and, and, and that's a lot of what you're talking about in your book as well, I think. Absolutely. No, I think that's absolutely right. Zachary, how do you and other young people, insofar as you ever think about the U.S.-British relationship, the Anglo-American relations, to what extent uh, does this help you to think about our world today as you look forward and try to make sense of this terrible pandemic we're living through, but also the hopeful signs of change around racial awakening and political movements and things of that sort? How, how does this conversation connect to the conversations young idealists like yourselves, like yourself are having? I think it connects very clearly. It shows us that democracy and, uh, and, and democratic institutions are messy and that change takes a long time. I think too often we end the history with the heroic Americans and British landing on the beaches of Normandy instead of actually examining what led up to that moment and then what followed. I, I think that this is really a call to action to, uh, to re-examine the history of the latter part of the 20th century and the Anglo-American relationship in regards to that. That's great. And, and I think Ian's book opens up so many interesting conversations we can have about this vitally important history, a history that's often uh, oversimplified, as Ian points out, uh, and then the meaning and relevance of that history for today. Uh, Ian, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. No, and, and I'd like to just add that um, uh, I agree with every word Zachary uh, said, and he summed up my book much better than I have.
<laughs> well, he read it, as did I, and I encourage all of our listeners to read your book. And, and I do think the history of uh, Anglo-American relations has so much to teach us today, not because we're going to replay that history, as Ian said, but because many of those issues uh, are alive and well today, as relevant today as they were in 1945 or 1956 or 1991. Uh, thank you again, Ian. Thank you, Zachary, for your poem. And most of all, thank you to our listeners for joining us on this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.